You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Christopher Media, let's make some noise. You want to play against me? You're no chance. You don't know that. (laughs) It's the ultimate game of chance. And the most extreme sport of all. (laughs) Where winning is surviving. And nobody survives forever. I taught you how to use that luck. Now you think you're luckier than me. I discovered, and your gift I take away. already I think it's time to play welcome to the projection booth I'm your host Mike White joining me once again is Mr. Jamie Duvall feeling lucky to be here thank you also back in the booth this week is Ms. Heather Drain hello hello this week We are up all night to get lucky. We're talking about the 2001 film from director and co-writer Juan Carlos Fresnadillo, Intacto. The film stars Leonardo Speraglia as Tomas, a man who survives a plane crash and who may just be the luckiest man in the world. He's found by Frederico, played by Esuibo Poncela who introduces him to an underground world where luck is something of a commodity, and the man who rules over the kingdom, Samuel Berg, is played by Max von Sydow. We're going to be getting some massive spoilers on this episode about Intacto, the films 13, The Cooler, maybe even Peter Weir's Fearless, and a few more just for kicks. If you don't want to lose your luck, you may want to turn off the podcast and come on back after you've watched a few movies. We will still be here. Now, Heather, I think this was a first-time watch for you, so I won't ask when you first saw it, but I am very curious. What did you think? I had honestly, and I'm embarrassed to say this, I'd never even heard of this film until you contacted me about this episode. And I think I even wrote to you, like, I've never, I'm not familiar with this, and you were like, perfect. And uh, so I took it as a challenge, and I thought, well, this actually be kind of cool to enter something completely pure for a podcast. I did watch the trailer before I watched the film and the trailer, honestly, I thought was a bit lackluster and I was, I was starting to have like doubts like, Oh God, what has Mike (laughs) gotten me into? Uh, But then as I started watching the film itself, I was pretty instantly gripped. I thought it was tight. Uh, I thought the cinematography was great. I really love the actors. I think it's an intriguing, very intriguing film. It's like there are puzzle box aspects to it that I'm, I'm hoping to unravel with you guys because my mind is definitely still kind of worrying about some of the facets in it. But um, as a whole, I I think it's fantastic. I really enjoyed it. How about you, Jamie? Well, I'm with Heather. I had never heard of it before. 
I watched it and I thought it was just like Heather said, it's kind of a puzzle of a movie and it's an interesting contraption the the central premise of luck being some kind of almost black market commodity is an interesting premise to build this unlikely thriller. I watched it once and I, I, I feel like I would definitely benefit from seeing it again because it's a film of a lot of connections that you might miss the first time. I feel a little fuzzy on some of them because some of it, it's very mysteriously opaque in some sections of it. Uh, but on the whole, I, I, I thought it was a really neat, unexpected thriller. I saw this one probably back in the early 2000s. For some reason, Lionsgate, kind of out of the blue, sent me a bunch of screeners. And I was very lucky to get this one, But I'm a Cheerleader and Cube all in one fell swoop. And it was like all three movies I absolutely love. We've done episodes on Cube and now in Tacto. Haven't done a But I'm a Cheerleader episode yet, but maybe somewhere down the line. Yeah, I had no idea what this movie was about when I popped it in. I hadn't even seen a trailer. Just really kind of blew the doors off. I was very excited to see it. And it was one of those where I was just like you, Jamie, I knew that a second look would be beneficial. So it's one that I've watched uh, time and again, I can't say repeatedly, but over the years I've watched it several times. It's just like, well, hey, let's watch Intacto like every, I don't know, three or four years. Then as other things have come up, as other movies have come out, as other things in pop culture have happened, it's like, oh, hey, that owes a debt to Intacto, and we'll talk about that in the second half of the show as far as what movies have kind of borrowed a little bit, let's say, from this film. Yeah, I like that it really sets up this whole world of luck and this whole underground that they have, and I think that's kind of where uh, first-time viewers might not necessarily get all those nuances because there are a lot of things where it's just like, well, why are they doing this? And why are they doing that? And I think that the script is so well thought out that we really have to go back and look a few times because they have all these rules in place. And fortunately, even though we have Tomas as kind of this newcomer, Frederico, who takes him into this world, isn't one of these really chatty guys who says, well, there's this and that and the other thing. You know, we always have that new, the character who's new to the world, and then you have the other character explain everything to him. Frederico's very closed mouth, and he really doesn't say a whole lot to Tomas in this film. So we don't have, you know, Mr. Exposition just running on at the mouth to, you know, the new crewman aboard the Enterprise or anything. And even when we start off, it's just like, well, what the hell's happening? We've got this scene at a casino. And we've got this guy who's swimming, and eventually he gets out of the pool, puts on a suit. He's got a guy who's got his tie ready for him. He goes out, and by touching this punter, the guy suddenly starts to lose. And then our main guy, Frederico, we find out, goes over to a slot machine. And while the one guy's losing, he's winning at a slot machine. Even though there's dialogue, it is very, very typical dialogue, like, Last night when I was rewatching this, I forgot to turn the subtitles on, and so it was mostly in French and a little bit of Spanish at this point. And I was like, I, yeah, I don't know if they have subtitles for this or not, because I don't really need them, because it is told so visually that I didn't need all this dialogue. Anything that you think is going to happen doesn't necessarily happen. I think viewers get so babied, especially to like mainstream films. Where, yeah, you have like Captain Exposition, <laughs> and you also have at least a fulfilling ending, which it could be kind of debated on how happy this ending really is for anybody. 
and the with Frederico especially, to me, he was the most fascinating character. Yeah, I thought he was a very strong character. And Tomas is interesting because he is kind of a, a blank slate a lot of the time. And even though he's there to learn things, I'm really paying a lot more attention to Frederico. They're very smart in the way that they give us the Samuel Berg character, because even when Von Sito isn't necessarily on screen, we get a lot of them at the beginning, we get a lot of them at the end, but then every once in a while we do kind of a check-in with him. Like, Frederico will call him at one point and be like, you know, are you still playing the game? And almost, you know, taunting him a little bit. And it's nice that we get these little check-in moments with Von Sito just to get a little bit more of him and have his presence in the film because i mean the guy is just so magnetic i love him in anything that he does even the shittiest movies as long as vancito's there it's like oh you know he's so great to watch because he has a gravitas about him i mean this is the guy that played chess with death so uh and, and he fills that role of kind of the grand marshal the the luckiest person on earth very well in this movie he's kind of a mythic character in a way and it also is interesting how he's the one character that speaks English, which in this film makes him exotic. Yeah, I, I think he is essential because you need an actor like that, which you just said, because he does have screen time at the beginning, but you need to feel him throughout. That's what he gives you without being on screen. You can sense the power of his presence. To me, it was almost like he was like the godly elder uh, of the whole film. And the fact that we don't even find out like his name, his actual name until like midway, well, midway through the film, like in my notes, I have him as the old man. And then at one point, somebody refers to him as the old Jew. And then it's like, Oh, Samuel Berg. So, which I thought was kind of a cool sort of thing. And his, uh, his interactions with Frederico, like in the beginning when basically Frederico's wanting out of this, you know, and at this point, you're not even quite sure what's going on quite other than you know luck's kind of tied to it but you know i love it when c Dow like barks at him to sit down and frederico only kind of half sits it's like some interesting slight kind of power play but you know with the fact that frederico wanting out of something that's obviously brought him a lot of luck and then you have like their this meeting where you think oh god what's going to happen because there's this great tension where c Dow approaches them samuel approaches frederico and is he going to kill him you know what's going to happen? He's going to kiss him and he hugs him. And it's like the most devastating thing. And you're like, what a curious thing. Why is an embrace so awful? Something is something warm and lovely, you know? And then of course we find out a little bit later on. Yeah. At first I was thinking that it's kind of like leech from the X-Men, but I think it's really more like rogue, but you know, like when rogue will touch somebody and absorb their powers and these guys, it seems like Frederico can do it a little bit, but then Samuel tells him your power is not strong enough at another point. And that's before he gives him that hug and just zaps all the luck out of him completely. And then from then on, even as uh, he is, looking for eventually finds and starts to groom Tomas rules are don't take any pictures of me, which comes back later in the film, which is fantastic and don't touch me. And that's his big thing because I think that if, if Tomas were to touch him, he would get all of his luck zapped away. And I don't know if it would necessarily go into Frederico. I don't think so, but I think at this point, Frederico is more of a jinx than he is a a good luck charm. Well, and it's interesting that, that there is, that element of the story that's almost supernatural in nature because the way people lose their luck or gain their luck through touch 
uh, it's almost like a supernatural transference. And then there's the element of you take their picture and you take something from them. And that reminded me of, I forget what culture it was, but back in the 1800s or whatever it was, they would consider if you took their photo, it would take away a part of their soul. It's very familiar, and it seems like it's something that went into a J-horror film as well. And I can imagine an American remake, which I think they were talking about remaking this at one point, making all those little connections and devices and rules that are specific to this plot device, spelling them out to the T. And this movie doesn't do that. This movie requires you to do a little work on your own, which is always refreshing. Because eventually we're introduced to this Tomas character, and we're introduced to him before even Frederico is introduced to him. Seven years later, they uh, not only do they take all of his luck from him, but uh, Samuel sends out these two guys to basically, I don't know if they're supposed to have killed him or just throw him out of the car or bury him alive, but he's not doing too well. And it takes him seven years to kind of get back on his feet and he's out looking for someone new to take this position to, to be kind of his pawn in this game of luck. And in the interim, we're introduced to Tomas who has survived a plane crash. And for some reason, he's got this, large amount of money around his waist so we find out later on that he is a bank robber and that he was trying to flee so kind of unlucky that he got caught but lucky at the same time that he's one of what 237 people that survived this devastating plane crash no one else even walked away and he walked away completely unscathed eventually runs into this character named sarah who plays an interesting role, and I'm still kind of trying to figure out, even though I've watched this film probably five, six times, maybe more, I'm still trying to figure out necessarily her motivation, because she is a lucky person as well, and then I don't know where she fits with this Frederico and Tomas world, because she seems completely like an outsider as well. I don't think she even realizes that Samuel is over it, and she doesn't even seem to realize the rules of it. She's kind of learning the rules by following Tomas and Frederica once they join up. From the get-go, she seems to have especially strong interest in this case, especially once Thomas disappears. I kind of wonder now that's almost like her subconscious like drive. Like somehow, like subconsciously, she knows she's somehow connected to this universe. And Jamie, I love it so much that you mentioned and used the word supernatural. Because one thing that hit me watching the film at one point, I'm like, it's almost like... I wouldn't call this like a proper vampire film, but it's almost like the thing with like energy mm. vampires, you know, where this is, it's almost to me, almost less about luck. And you're just, you're taking energy, you're taking an essence from someone else, which is exactly what vampirism is. That's right. Uh, and uh, you're exactly right. And that's a really interesting element of it. Another thing that's interesting, and I think it's, it speaks to the, the, the Sarah character, the, the cop that goes after this, the case um, it's a movie about uh, survivor guilt in a way, and I think mm. if she's if she's drawn to uh, Tomas, I think it's that connection of uh, an, another person that uh, beat the odds and who is uh, as lucky. I think they've said that it was a 237 million to one chance that you survive a plane crash. Was that like the stat that they gave in the movie? I don't even know if that's a real stat. Yeah, he said it was a million to one odds that he survived, and then that he was only one of 237. He then multiplied it by that. 
they're they're connected in that way. Obviously, the, the Von Sydow character, when we get into his character motivations and his backstory later on, I mean, he has a touch of the survivor guilt as well. I think a lot of the movies that deal with luck, some of which we'll be talking about tonight, also deal with the aftermath of, you know, why was I the one to survive? Why was I lucky? It 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 is both a blessing and a curse for a lot of the characters in, in this film and others. In these films, we are talking a very binary thing, because if somebody is lucky, then somebody else is unlucky. Because we get Sarah's backstory told through these flashbacks throughout the film, which is a very nice touch, the way that we get her story revealed, that she survived and her husband and daughter didn't survive. You know, she's very lucky, they're very unlucky, and that's all there is to it as far as in order for one person to have the luck, then other people end up having to die, it seems like. Well, and it brings into like question the how lucky is anybody if they're having to be the survivor and live with that, to live with the ashes, live with the debris. And, you know, that's one thing I noticed with especially with like Samuel Frederic and especially Frederico as well as Sarah and to some lesser degree Thomas is that there's a haunted quality. There's like a weight obviously being carried with them, especially with Samuel. Yeah, who's been having to carry this quote unquote gift and being the elder of this for decades and, and the repetition of how Frederico keeps telling him you're not going to die of old age, which I thought was very fascinating. Yeah. And one of the most kind of haunting moments of the film for me, too, was when Shara is talking to Anna and uh, finds out that I believe it's the Anna character that she only survived the plane crash because she didn't get on it because she was told by Tomas that uh, he doesn't love her anymore. And that led her to not get on that plane. And then Sarah fantasizes about telling her husband that she doesn't love him anymore. And that's what, in her imagination, prevented the car crash that took her husband and child's life. That was a very moving element of it. Sarah and Samuel are the ones who wear physical scars or physical marks of their quote-unquote luck, and yet Tomas and Frederico do not. Sarah, who or Sarah, who does not necessarily know about this world, her villains is really Tomas, and it, she doesn't necessarily break the case until she starts to follow the lead of Frederico. And for the longest time in this movie, Samuel is only a villain to Frederico because he took his power. And not a villain to Tomas. So Tomas has no skin in this game, or many games as this film has, has no skin in this until Anna comes in as this kind of pawn towards the end. And he's been a pawn this whole time, and now suddenly Anna is there as stakes in this. The process of it kind of brings you into this world. It's like the secret society where, you know, you have like a circle of people who are the lucky ones and they gamble. And this is like the way that Frederico kind of entices Thomas, you know, it's like basically, you know, I can give you freedom, but you got to gamble. And at first it just sounds like, you know, gambling, like what poker, you know, (laughs) gambling money. And, but no, instead it's like, there's this weird sort of game where he's put in a room and everybody's blindfolded. And everyone has to put something at stake. And initially, it's things you are used to seeing with gambling, like hor- like a horse and a fancy car and a-, a house. And Thomas has to put his check, 
his insurance check for surviving the airplane crash and his finger, as well as Frederico's finger as a stake. Just the sequence where they see this, they have this insect come out and select the person was so like, it's sort of like very magical looking set next to this sort of weird crime world, you know, because it's not necessarily crime at this point, but it feels very seedy and very underground. And I just, I don't know, I love the juxtaposition. Like, this film is full of great colors next to complete grit. Because, like, you have the primary reds and the greens of the casino. But then, like, when you get into, like, the labyrinth of the casino where people are confronted with uh, Samuel, it's complete cement and starkness. And it's all set, and it's also in the middle of a desert. The visual contrast in this film, I, I thought, were really, really striking. Yeah, that moment of the bug is really one of those WTF moments that this movie has, which I love. And there's another one that comes slightly before when Federico is trying to find this protege, and he ends up talking to this guy who telling this long, involved story about he lost a check, and then he found a check, and hey, aren't I the luckiest guy in the world? And Federico tests him out by having him put on a blindfold, again with the blindfold, and run across traffic. And if he makes it across traffic, hey, he's a really lucky guy. He ends up getting hit. And it took me a long time before I realized that Sarah is the one that hits him in the car. Ends his lucky streak right there. <laughs> so, And it's just another one of those, like, what the hell is going on? What am I watching here? Why is this guy running across, uh, you know, this busy highway blindfolded? And then, yeah, when you get to the bug part, it's just like, what the hell is happening? Because you don't know for the longest time. They, they bring these guys in when they find out, you know, that Frederico is part of this and they want more. They want his finger. And it's just like, oh, my God, what is happening here? And then finally, when they bring out the bug again, it's like, what what is going on? These two characters that he's betting against, this older lady and this uh, man. And I thought that the man was just going to kind of disappear after that scene, uh, after he loses his house to uh, Frederico and Tomas in his bet. And then he ends up being a major character in this, this bullfighter character. And I was very happy to see him come back because he's a very compelling character. And after a while, he almost becomes the mentor to Sarah as she's tracking them down. And she very quickly outsmarts him. And I love how smart of a character Sarah is that it's a female investigator in this film, that it's not just a male story, that she has a very crucial role in this film. I actually find myself drawn very much to her. And because it's a strange story in that there isn't a clear-cut protagonist outside of Sarah, I think, in terms of the three male leads, they're all compromised to different degrees. You know, after the crash and everything, I kind of, like, questioned a lot of things like, well, how good is his luck? Because, I mean, he won the bug game, but Frederico has this gentleman put treacle in Thomas's hair, and he says, yeah, what does he say? It it likes it or it's it's its favorite. And for, you're like, what is he talking about? But then he does the bug game. And and then later on, like they win, you know, the bullfighter's house who, you know, we soon are revealed is revealed to be Alejandro. But Thomas gets weak and from a, a nearby payphone calls Anna, whose phone is, of course, being bugged by the police and they end up getting chased by the cops so it's like they do escape the cops but it's like i don't know i mean is is thomas's luck really as great as federico is or is it kind of like something that federico's just he's just trying to hold on to something any kind of hope even when 
we see the next game that they're supposed to play, which is this game with these captives, because we've heard earlier on in the film, there's a mention of, you know, oh, Samuel has everything, the the money, the casino, the captives. And I was just like, what captives are you talking about? And then we see these people. It seems like they're just there to have their luck stolen by the lucky people. And I'm still kind of unclear as far as how all this stuff works. And even after they're done playing this or, or they're in the midst of playing it, Sarah realizes that Tomas is one of the players because he arrived late. She, again, is blindfolded. There's a lot of blindfolds in this movie. Some fetish community is very happy about it. And she ends up pulling her gun and then the game is invalidated. She gets knocked out and then they escape. But it's just like, what is this whole game? What was going to happen? So it's, uh, you know, I don't know if that was the extent of it was for them to just steal their luck or if there's going to be a part two to this game. I was incredibly intrigued with the whole premise of the captives and especially because, you know, the way that the captives are brought in and the scene, it's at first it's through like a, like a one-sided mirror, you know, almost like what you're used to seeing like in crime dramas where, you know, police are having a lineup of potential criminals and somebody's supposed to be like, oh, that's the guy, you know, that stole my purse or exposed himself or whatever. And instead it's the captives and you, and it's almost like this perverse bidding, people bidding on, on, on humans, which is, you know, and again, like not to go back to the vampire thing, but I'm totally going to go back to it is that, you know, there's some vampire fiction where you have humans who offer themselves as willing donors. I mean, actually, even in like real life, like blood fetish communities, you have that. And, but you're like, but how do these people get mixed in with this group? I was so intrigued by that. We're not really ever given a clear answer on that, but I would definitely be intrigued to find out. And again, to your point, Heather, as far as Tomas not necessarily being lucky, because he doesn't like this whole idea of playing with the captives. So he ends up, you know, like, I want to play a different way. And he ends up playing this game where he is blindfolded again, and his hands are tied behind his back along with a whole bunch of other people. And it's this race through the forest. And basically, whoever makes it out is is the lucky one in that case. He's not the one that makes it out. He ends up running right into a tree. He ends up getting picked up by the same guys who had taken Frederico out and dumped him uh, in the early part of the film. So he was really not very lucky when it comes to this. And he ends up having Anna be uh, stakes for a game. And the bullfighter ends up winning her. Again, They he had a picture of himself and Anna. And by having that picture, it is used as basically a, a poker chip, a, a betting slip. And the bullfighter was able to use that and steal Anna away. He only has her for a few minutes because then very quickly he loses a game. The bullfighter loses a game to Samuel. And now Samuel has that. And now finally Tomas has a villain. Samuel is part is, is actually a villain to Tomas now. Yeah, that's a remarkable sequence. Uh, the run through the forest. When the movie initially started, and I knew that they'd be going through a series of games of chance to kind of test their luck. I just thought it would, they'd be playing cards the whole movie. <laughs> so <laughs> so all, all of these very unique, original uh, sequences with the insect, like Heather was describing it, and the run through the forest, uh, they're, they're, they're very uh, suspenseful and just just different. 
there's not one wasted minute in this film. You know, there's that was the thing that really uh, surprised me. Well, one of the, I don't know, 80, 11 things that surprised me in this film was that um, there's just every, everything is just so expertly, like every resource in this film is expertly used. And, you know, like Jamie, like you were saying, when I saw the trailer, I was like, oh God, I just thought it was going to be just like nothing but like card playing and gambling and that trailer should have been better cut. This film is really, it is really something special. And it's, uh, it is like very subtly supernatural, um, but in a way that really like hits you over the head with, which I think we're so used to, um, especially in light of all the superhero movies and, and all of that. Right. And when we say, when we say it's a puzzle or when I say it's a puzzle movie, it's not a, a puzzle movie like, something david lynch would do necessarily it's all there and you get the feeling that if you watch it one more time you can figure it out whereas something that something that lynch does when 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 he makes a film it's kind of it's a it's an abstract painting almost uh and i feel when i watch his work it's like take from it what what moves you but this this one really does work almost like on a memento level because the construction of the story the way it's told is so outside of the box that once you get in the groove of that and and you figure things out i think it falls into place for you pretty easily so i don't want to give people the impression that this movie is so removed from comprehension that you shouldn't check it out because it is a very entertaining intriguing uh, movie there's nothing in this film that to me ever felt intentionally or necessarily obtuse it's more of a puzzle in the sense of like everything will come together, but it, you know, it's going to make you work for it a little bit, but it's going to provide you everything you need. But, you know, like you both have said, yeah, multiple viewings, probably. I mean, I, I want to watch this again already. Cause just cause I know I'm going to, I feel like I'm going to catch a lot of things that I missed uh, in my initial viewing. Going back to what you were saying, Heather, as far as the look of the film, this run through the forest is one of the most visually striking with the green of all the forest that he's running through. It's just it's one of the most vibrant greens that you've ever seen. Oh, it's gorgeous. It's so it's so gorgeous. And it's so unsettling, too, because you have this like tension and blood and people are just like running like face first. And <laughs> so, so and I'm always such a sucker for that. I love it when you can mix in something kind of uh, awful with something that's really you know, especially some natural beauty, because it makes it just seem even more dirty and perverse. I think it speaks to kind of a, a hyper uh, reality, like a hypersensitivity in, in those moments when the colors really pop. And and then it says something that Max von Sydow's lair, for lack of a better word, like you said, Heather's, is very concrete. Max von Sydow wears these very dull cream colors, uh, almost as though <clears throat> he needs to exist in non-threatening meditative state in in order to maintain his luck so his environment is a little devoid of any any color and i don't think it's any small coincidence that they dress tomas almost exactly like samuel towards the end of the film and there's a great moment when samuel takes tomas out to the desert outside the casino and it's him and frederico and samuel and the way that we have them framed with Tomas and Samuel on either side, and then Frederico in the middle, and Frederico's dressed all in black. It almost it almost reminded me 
of the uh, that chess scene that you're talking about from the Seventh Seal, where it's just like very. It feels like something big is going to happen, and it is about to happen. Just not necessarily outside here. We're going to go back into, as you said, the lair for that final uh, confrontation and that final game of chance, and also for Samuel's monologue to tell us why he is this god of luck, as it were. Before I forget. The one thing I was a little afraid when we start in the casino and we go back to the casino, but uh, to your point, Heather, I was afraid that this was going to be a very casino-bound movie because I think at one point somebody says the phrase God of Gamblers, and I immediately was taken to the Chow Yun-Fat series, The God of Gamblers from Hong Kong, which is all casino-type stuff, and it's not a very good movie. I know some people love those movies and they made buku bucks and they had, I think at least three or four plus offshoots and all this kind of stuff. But I like that they go outside of the casino a lot, that it's not just a casino bound movie, which probably has to be one of the cheaper ways to shoot a movie. It's just all in a casino. Well, and actually it's, it's amazing how, how little of the movies actually in the casino, which I definitely loved. And I, I'm glad you mentioned that image, you know, with Frederico being the center figure, you know, in black, because I, I, it is such a great image. To me, it was almost like sort of made it seem, and it is in a way, it's like they're preparing for a ritual because, you know, another image that kind of had, you have that same kind of flanking um, and contrast to color would be like the opening of Holy Mountain. Hordorowski's character is, is prepping the two sort of like 30s, 1930s era blondes. But, you know, it's, it's a great contrast. And actually, I want to go back to something you mentioned earlier, Mike, because the bullfighter character Alejandro is is so amazing. And he seems to be like the only one who doesn't seem he doesn't have that like um, like haunted quality, even though he's like he's in the he's in the shit, too, you know, <laughs> with everyone else. He's almost very arrogant, which is perfect for, you know, probably being a matador. Even when Sarah's got him, you know, he's very smooth. But at the same time, he kind of reveals himself to be a complete just a uh, complete dick, really. And um, <laughs> I don't know how else to put it, but uh well, yeah, when he says, are you going to fuck me up like you fucked up your husband and daughter? I was like, whoa, dude, that's a little. Yeah, bad. but man, the acting, all of the actors, I thought just uh, were just top notch. I mean, I knew Max von Sydow would be great because uh, he's Max von Sydow, of course. But like, I, I just thought everybody brought their A game. The actor who plays Federico, he's amazing. He um, some of it was a physicality. He reminded me a lot, actually, in some ways, of Michael Rogers' performance and Beyond the Black Rainbow. But just this sort of quiet intensity. Like, I just, he he was magnetic. I mean, everybody's great in this film, but him, him especially, and his character is very magnetic as well. So it's like a perfect pairing. I love the references you're, pull, you're pulling out, Heather. I mean, you got the, you got the Hordorowski, you got the Beyond the Black Rainbow. This is, uh, this is great. Yeah, you're a true movie geek, so I... I love that. Uh, but I, I have to say, with Von Sydow, I think that last monologue that he has, where he explains his backstory, is is the most beautifully performed moment in the movie. And one of the highlights, I think, of his career, which is just epic already. Uh, it's it's really well written, but it, it's, it's beautifully performed. Uh, I mean, if you look at that moment, just the simplicity of how he plays that, where where everything is transmitted, but nothing is over-dramatized. It's a great piece of acting in that moment. You know, with the sequences, which I guess we, we need to mention, when somebody, when the lucky, quote-unquote, person, when, they're, when it's time for them to have their match, 
with Samuel, it's basically a game of Russian roulette where it's five bullets and six chambers. Every time, like, because we see him play it earlier with the bullfighter with not so good, spoiler alert again, with not good results for Alejandro. But, like, when he loses, even though he's winning, it's like he loses. There's, like, there's this sense of this man who, who wants to kind of cut out because he's tired of living. Even the very beginning when he's talking to Federico, he's, he says almost optimistically, oh, I had some chest pain. You know, like, who says that? <laughs> you know? I'm having chest pain! And get further movie geek credentials. Um, the whole Russian roulette thing with him kind of reminded me of like the scenes with Kinski and, Sh- and David Schmoller's Crawl Space, which is weird because that character was the son of a Nazi. <laughs> and you know we, but like, but there's you know, every time he plays it and he lo- and he loses the game by winning, meaning the gun doesn't go off. He's like heartbroken. Like he he doesn't want to be here. He doesn't want to carry this burden. And and that's the thing with Samuel and and Cedal plays it so subtly and just beautifully like you said jamie that sense of just the of somebody having to carry so much weight that they're actually sad that they win at not dying well, it, it, it's interesting because i mean this movie obviously like you said has elements of russian roulette and elements of great kind of violence and cruelty in it and yet it doesn't feel nihilistic obviously the performers infuse their characters with a sense of humanism <clears throat> and i think that's what keeps this movie from from feeling nihilistic, even in, in the scenes of Russian roulette, unlike another movie that we're going to talk about later. <laughs> Whenever Russian roulette comes up, and I'm not a big fan of Way of the Gun, but I always remember that scene of, uh, was it Jeffrey Lewis, when he is uh, playing Russian roulette and then he gets a phone call? Joe. Yeah, you busy? No. Not at all. Yeah, that is not this scene. This scene is very, very intense. And yeah, especially for it to come after the uh, the speech that Vancido gives, and then that it ends up not necessarily playing out the way that it should, that this is the moment that Sarah comes back into the story, that uh, we have this great motif in the film of lights and lights going on and off. And that's the way that they communicate with Frederico when he's in the pool is by flashing lights. That's the way that Samuel talks, quote unquote, with his his uh, henchmen, let's call them, on the outside of his bunker with these lights going on and off. And it's a moment like that. And of course, we've got the bug with the lights off and the bug flashing. It's it's kind of bioluminescence. And then the lights are off in the last scene and the way that that plays off with light and dark is fantastic as well. And just that things don't necessarily work out. It's not necessarily the the game that it should have been. It, it's all kinds of fucked up for those guys, but it's all kinds of beautiful for us as the viewers to see the way that this plays out and to see the fates of all these different characters, because fate is such a, a major player in this work. Well, what do you think the lights indicate? I mean, as a, as a motif, what, what do you think they express about, you know, the, the themes of the film? Well, you know, I did talk about that binary before, as far as if you have uh, your, your lucky person, you have to have your unlucky person as well. We've got the play of the black and white that we were just talking about with the outfits themselves and so it seems like, you know, it's a very practical thing when it comes to getting Frederico out of the pool, because 
you can't really yell at him. He's swimming. You know, um, there's no real good way for anybody to communicate with somebody who's uh, in a swimming pool other than the flip- flicking of the lights. And it seems like it's the best way for them to communicate uh, when it comes to this. So it almost becomes a double for communication, which is great in a movie where people don't talk too much. And when they talk, they talk in multiple languages as well, mostly English and Spanish. And to your point from earlier, Von Sydow really, I don't think he ever speaks Spanish in this. It is always English. Do you think there's a connection talking about the lights? Because, you know, earlier in the film, we see that Sarah has this painting in her bedroom. And it's this just like it's just like a lot of blacks. It looks like a, a nightscape. And there's this weird, but they're in the center of just all of this bleakness. There's sort of this weird sort of scratches of white and yellow. And uh, Mike, I think I think in the script you referred to it as a comet. It almost looked to me almost like a weird cult symbol. I don't know. It's very it's sort of like a very abstract looking, you know, design. But um, but it's sort of it's another light in the darkness. And it's neat too because when she comes out of the building when she is playing that game with the uh, the captives, when she looks up she sees a shooting star. And I was like, well, that's a nice little touch because that is that painting of what I can assume to be a shooting star, or you say it's a cult symbol. At first I thought it was something that she had scratched because it doesn't look very good. I'll be honest, <laughs> but you know, what do I know about modern art? It, it, it looked like something that she had scratched into her, uh, her footrest on her bed. And I was like, what the hell is this thing? And then finally we get a, a shot later on where we see that's a, a picture and she tells, I think she tells Alejandro that this is what she bought with her insurance money. So after her husband and daughter died, this was her sole investment. And it's kind of an interesting way to use your money because here she is, a cop who's not making a whole lot of money. She's not necessarily living in the best place in the world. And she just has this one thing that she puts up to look at. And even though she carries a physical scar with her everywhere she goes to remind her of her husband and daughter, I think this is an outward sign for her to always remember her husband and daughter. I thought that was such a beautiful touch with that painting. It kind of speaks a lot about Sarah as a character without really saying a whole lot or overstating anything. Yeah, and again, I like that it's when she finally decides to track down the Frederico lead that she manages to take that to where she needs to go and that's what eventually leads her to the casino and she becomes this unknown quantity when it comes to their final duel and when it comes to the duel it ends up tomas survives sarah ends up dying uh and frederico is alive samuel is dead and frederico it seems like he's devastated because max was it, to me, it was well. He was his mentor. He talks about that early on in the film, and it feels more than anything that they were friends of some sort, and that uh, he seems genuinely sad that Samuel is gone. It was just a very touching moment where he he just kind of cradles Samuel's head and makes sure and closes his eyes, and then later on covers his face, and you know, on top of that, like you're basically. Frederico just is basically left to sit in this room of death while Thomas, you know, who tries to get him to come with them. Thomas ends up leaving. And I'm trying to think, what is it that, yeah, Frederico says, it's you who have won. Take care to Thomas. I mean, am I not understanding correctly that Max von Sydow, obviously he took him in 
and raised him, mentored him more or less. But Max von Sydow could not touch him. And so the the, the movie's touching climax <laughs> is uh, likely the first time that he's ever really touched von Sydow. Maybe the the end of the journey is to finally be able to do to to reach out and actually touch his father figure. It, that's that's a kind of closure for him in a in a way. And I love that von Sydow when he dies, he has that picture, the picture that the other prisoner from the concentration camp gave to him, the picture of the guy's sister that he kind of carries around. You know, it's again the photograph. You know, we've we've talked about the photographs as being representatives of people's lives and the stakes for so many of these games. And he dies with that photograph in his hand, whereas Tomas goes outside and burns the photograph of Anna. So there's nothing that is holding her anymore, and she is now free. She didn't even know that she was stakes in this game, but she's now free. And Samuel, even though he's dead, I mean, that is his freedom, is to finally have that escape from everything. All right, we're going to take a break and play an interview with the co-writer of Intacto, Andres M. Coppel, right after these brief messages. Hello, I'm Jeff Sandwich. You might not know me, barely anyone does, except my mother and her cocker spaniel, Alan. But I have listened to every single movie podcast that has ever been made. I don't get out much, and sometimes I have to make toilet in a bottle. What did he just say, Marjorie? However, having completed this exhaustive research, it is my assertion that the After Movie Diner podcast, with its heady mix of comedy, movie banter, fandom, passion, beards, music, and voluminous thighs, is in fact the greatest movie podcast available. Anywhere, even Holland. Find the After Movie Diner podcast on Blog Talk Radio, iTunes, Stitcher, and AfterMovieDiner.com. Now, where's that bottle? Do you ever wonder when Spider-Man goes to the bathroom if the toilet paper sticks to his fingers? Do you ever wonder why Superman wears his underwear outside of his pants? My name is Imran. My name is Anthony. He's the jock! And he's the nerd. And we're your hosts for the Jock and Nerd podcast, where we sometimes try to attempt to answer these questions. This is a full spoiler podcast, and we swear a lot. Check it out for awesome geek news, interviews, and comic book reviews. Visit jockandnerd.com. We are your superhero TV, movies, and comic book culture curators. Boom. Jockandnerd.com. Jockandnerd! Who is Carl Kolchak? He's a reporter. Now that is news, Vincenzo. News! And we are a news paper. We are supposed to print news, not suppress it. With the INS. What's an INS? Independent news servicer founded in 1904 by Enrico Peluzzi. Who seems to have a nose for the strange and unusual. Well, last year in Las Vegas, I uncovered a series of murders that turned out to have been committed by a vampire. And what is the Kolchak Tapes? It's a podcast. All about Carl Kolchak. What's a Kolchak? The Night Stalker. And where can you get it? On iTunes, Stitcher Radio, and at www.kolchaktapes.com. As foolish a game as any that Gordy the Ghoul could make up. 
Hi, this is Andrew from We Hate Movies, and you're listening to The Projection Booth. If you feel like laughing after listening to some serious film discussion, head on over to our show, whmpodcast.com. Every Tuesday, a new episode drops, us ragging on bad movies, whereas the good folks here at The Projection Booth are talking about good, hearty, cinema-related stuff. Go here for the cinema. Come to us for the laughs afterwards. We Hate Movies every Tuesday. How did you end up getting in the entertainment business? What is your background? Well, uh, it's funny. Uh, I can tell you I was, uh, I'm in the entertainment business because of love. And I'll tell you why. All my family, all my father's family, they, are, they have a tradition of being scientists. We have a lot of biologists, physics majors, everything. Uh, and I was down that, that path. And I, I was, it was like in 1982, I was completely in love with a girl, and it was a beautiful uh, spring um, day, and I was attending a calculus class, and I said to myself, if I stay here one minute more, I'm going to be completely unhappy. So I I stood up and I left, and I didn't know what to do with my life, and a very good group of friends of mine, they were doing the first movie that was shot in the Canary Islands, and they needed someone to help them, so I went there, and... I started being um, a director of photography assistant, and afterwards I decided I like this of making movies. So I, I, I traveled to Madrid, and there I studied uh, cinematography. I went to the university again. And then one summer I went to Barcelona, and there I started to work for TV commercials. I started to, uh, to work in production. I stayed there for two years doing mainly uh, editing and post-production. So I did a little, a little bit of everything. And afterwards, I had to, in Spain, at that time, I had to go to the military service. I was drafted. So I spent one year, and when I finished my year, I lost my job. I lost everything that kept me here in Spain. I decided I want to go to the United States and study film. So I went to UCLA. I went to the, to the extension program. And from there, I stayed there for three years. They were very happy years. I learned a lot. Then I returned to the Canary Islands to take charge of the um, Cinematheque from the Canary Islands. And one day, uh, I was there working. Uh, I had already shot my first uh, short. So I had uh, Juan Carlos as, as well with uh, Esposados, the one he, who had got nominated for the Oscars. And I received a call from him, and he was saying, what are you doing? Are you busy? And I said, well, I'm kind of busy. And I said, oh, that a pity because I need something. I said, what do you need? Is I need to, to come up across an idea for my first movie. I have a screenplay. Do you want to read it? He said, I'll read it. And after I read it, I didn't like it a lot. And I, and I said to him, you know, I wouldn't work. I wouldn't, I, I don't want to work in the screenplay you sent me, but I can go there to Madrid and we can sit down for 10 days and see if some, something comes out. And after 10 days, we came with the idea that uh, became intacto one year and a half later. What was that original screenplay like? It was something about a group of friends that were that kidnapped another one because uh, it was in rehab. I, I don't remember very well. It was kind of boring. And how did the idea for Intacto come about? It's funny because we, when we started, he said to me, uh, Juan, I, I went to Madrid and I sat down with Juan Carlos and he said to me, I only have this. I have a guy who is a cellist. He wants to travel uh, somewhere. 
going to take the plane, but he's very afraid of planes. So at the last moment, he decides not to not to take it, but he's already checked in his luggage and he's still there. That plane crashes and he has the feeling that that cello is intacto. It hasn't been destroyed. So he's going to go there to retrieve it to where the, 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 the plane has fallen. So that was that was the idea he had. From there, we started to develop uh, different ideas, and then we came one with one. We could sell to, at that time, the biggest studio in Spain was Sogecine. It was the idea that uh, some criminals, uh, they commit a, a bank robbery, and from there comes Tomas, uh, the, the, the intact protagonist, that he's a bank robber. They, they try to catch the same plane. All of them miss it, and that plane goes down. And they become very paranoid, and from there they started to die in, in strange circumstances. And at the end, that was the idea we had. Yeah, it sounds like the uh, Final Destination movies. Well, I mean, Final Destination, it's funny. You have to ask uh, Juan Carlos <laughs> why Final Destination is <laughs> very similar to our idea. Uh, I'm not going to tell you why. So we had that idea. Uh, these bank robbers that missed the, 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 the airplane and then the airplane crashes and they start to die in strange circumstances. There was nothing fantastic like in Final Destination. Here there was one of them was uh, taking advantage of the, parano- of, the group, of the group paranoia to start killing them and to take uh, all the money from, from us. It was uh, a more down-to-earth proposition. And But what, what happened to us is that uh, both, Juan Car- both for Juan Carlos and for me, it was our first screenplay. So any complication was hard for us we, we, to start to do something very complicated. So we wanted to simplify a little bit. So decided only one bank robber, only one, only, and he was traveling in the crash and he survived. And from there, I remember that was like six months into the writing process or something like that. Or I don't know, but it was quite long in. The idea occurred to us, what if this guy being a bank robber who is uh, being captured by the police because of this plane crash, what if a, a person comes and tells him, you know, you're lucky. And you're lucky not because luck exists, because you have that luck in you. And from there comes the concept of, of Intacto, that you could control luck. At the, at the moment, was you could control chaos. And uh, you were a, a person that you work like a magnet for uh, casual events. That you will put them in, so, uh, you will uh, order them in such a way that they will that they will seem to be good luck for you. And that was so complicated, as complicated as it is to explain it, that we said, you know what? If he touches someone, he he, he takes his luck. He steals his luck. Where did the Samuel character come from? We we wanted to have kind of a king, a, a, a king, a, a god of this uh, luck universe, no? this universe of chance, of luck, of people with very good luck because they stole it from other people. So I remember that conversation with Juan Carlos, with Enrique Lopez, with, who is the producer, and we were like looking for a lot of characters, you know, uh, an American who was uh, a survivor from the Vietnam War, we were people who were surviving from another kind of catastrophes, and then... They came across both Juan Carlos and Enrique, and they say, "Why? What if we come with a, a character who is a survivor of a, a concentration camp in Nazi Germany?" And for me, it was kind of a shock because I'm I'm from Jewish origin, and I said, "There are going to be some people who is going to, who are going to be a little bit uh, worried about that." And they say, "You know what? We don't care. Let's do it." 
from that character who experiences one of the worst experiences that a human being has has lived in this universe. Uh, from that character, it, it came the Samuel. I mean, we, we decided that um, surviving a concentration camp was something that you mean you you had to be very strong but very lucky at, at the same time. So we decided to to make Samuel concentration camp survivor. It it was it, it was it was funny, but when we when we presented the, the movie in, in, in the, at the Lincoln Center, uh, someone came to me. I remember uh, after the projection, the first one we did two. After the first projection, someone came to me straight to me and I said, "Andres, you are Jewish." He said, "I'm from a Jewish origin. Yes, I'm Jewish." And I said, "How do you permit it for for a concentration camp survivor to be the heavy of this movie?" Relative heavy, because if you see intacto, I mean, Samuel is not a bad person. It's a, it's a person obsessed by luck. And I couldn't, I couldn't answer. I, I felt very, I felt very sad. I felt very, I mean, that, that the person was attacking me. I, I, I felt that she was very, it was a she. Uh, she was very honest in her pain. And I couldn't, I could, I, I, I just wanted to cry. But then afterward, I started to think, why, why, why? why? And I, I said to myself, I said, why? Uh, because... For me, and my, I can tell you that my grand, grand, uh, my grand grandmother was in, uh, she she went to a concentration camp in France. So I know what what there is part of my family history. I, I'm 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 a, uh, my Jewish my, my my mother's side of the of the family is Jewish, and they're from Germany. So as you can imagine being Jewish and in Germany it was a very good and very nice thing. I, I think at the end I accept, I accepted that Samuel was a concentration camp survivor, being a Jewish uh, uh, person myself. Because I have the feeling that no one became a better person because of going to a concentration camp. And I resist myself to thinking that. You could survive, you could do, but no one, if, if you think or you want to think that someone becomes a better person because something so bad happens to them, I think that there may be a justification. I, I, I don't believe in that. I think it's such an awful, it's such an hell on earth that I resist myself of, of thinking that anything good came from, from that uh, horrible thing. And therefore, I, I, I accepted that uh, that Samuel could be a, a survivor. Just because somebody goes to a concentration camp doesn't mean that they end up a saint afterwards. You, you don't become a better person for that. I, I, I think I've seen a lot of movies about the concentration camps and about the Nazi prosecution of Jews. And I like a lot, I, the one I, I prefer, I, I like a lot, is uh, Roman Polanski, the pianist. The pianist? The pianist, yes. Why? Because the guy, after everything that happens to him, he ends, he ends up in the same place that he started, playing the piano in the radio. You remember, I don't know you remember. He doesn't, he's not a better person. Certainly he's not. He's lost his family. The best thing that can happen to you is that you remain the same. And that's what he tells. I prefer that to Spielberg's um, Schindler's List. Because in the Schindler's List, when I'm Jewish and I say, okay, it's great that someone like Schindler existed. It's great for a lot of Jews, and I can imagine that it would be great. But it's a guy who a lot of people had to suffer for, uh, to suffer for him to be a, a much better person, you know? And therefore, I said, okay, it, it would be better a world where these people didn't have to suffer, and he stayed the, the person he was. Once you have the script to this point, how does it then end up getting financed and becoming a movie? Well, it was kind of easy because, uh, as I told you, we sold the, the concept of the movie. 
So we were doing development uh, under the studio, under Sohestine, with Enrique and all the people there. So it was it, it, it was a, a question of having it finished to being being able to 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 take. It was I think it was like three million dollars at the time. No, maybe a little bit more. And um, it was a kind of movie I can I imagine it was kind of the movie that they could uh, uh, finance at the time. It wasn't so expensive. So it, it wasn't really a challenge to do that because it was already, and, and there was a lot of interest of, uh, with Juan Carlos because he was nominated to the Oscars and uh, everyone wanted to see what his first movie was going to be. So I, I don't know. I, I don't think there's a lot of, a lot of to talk about uh, financing. You should talk to Enrique, to his producer. The cast of the film is absolutely terrific and heavy hitters in there like uh, with Suibo Poncela and uh, Max von Sydow, of course. When we were writing the screenplay and we came across, when we, when we, we wrote the character of Samuel, we said we need to cast a very strong actor. Why? Because that actor is going to be, is the one who is going to give truth to this universe. If at the end of the movie you used to go to that casino in the middle of nowhere and then you, Samuel, the god of luck, is someone who you don't know or doesn't have that charisma, it's not going to work. So we need a big character. The first, the first character that came up to, to our mind was Paul Newman. We said, we love to have Paul Newman, which was a complete uh, uh, impossibility. We were in Spain, <laughs> we were very known, and to, 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 to talk to Paul Newman to come, I mean, he had, I don't know if he had done movies in Europe, I mean, it was, it was, but it was the kind of character we were looking, the kind of actor we were looking. We, we, we thought as well in Jean-Louis Trintignant, which we liked, it was kind of a, a, a more strange proposition, and then uh, Max von Sydow's name came, and I said, Max von Sydow, and we love Max von Sydow from all the uh, Bergman's movies, and why not from the the Exorcist, <laughs> the Exorcist, <laughs> he doesn't like to talk about the Exorcist, neither from the Exorcist, nor from Bergman. So we, we we send the script to we send the script to Max von Sydow, and at that time uh, we had already finished the the screenplay. I, and I was working as a head of development. I was the 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 chief the the the, 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 the head developer or the I mean the chief of development in Sohestine. They they hired me for that. And they said to us, you know, Max von Sydow wants to know uh, Juan Carlos, and you're going to go with him because Juan Carlos uh, at that time didn't speak uh, English very well. I went with him as a translator because I was the, the, the writer of the, the screenplay. We went to Nice uh, to meet Max von Sydow. It was a delightful uh, lunch. And I remember he, he, will, he, he asked Juan Carlos, okay, tell me what's Samuel about? What, what's Samuel? What's that the character? I remember there was like 20 minutes of Juan Carlos telling him things about Samuel, that he was a monster, concentration camp. God of Luck, a lot of things, and I was thinking uh, he's giving Max von Sydow like 20 ways to act this this character and uh, knowledge that he's going to use or not, but I mean, for many, many characters, not only Samuel, but I mean, it was it was really, really funny. I remember that uh, Max von Sydow was listening very attentively all the time, and at the end he said, okay, that's that's nice, and he said to his wife, uh, please give me my notes, and it was, it was a page of the, of the screenplay, as noticed, okay, in the page 77, in the monologue, he says, a guy with a uh, suit in a gray, in a, how do you call it, clear color comes in. What's the, what's the color exactly? And we say, it's sun. Okay. Here, uh, his bodyguard um, um, whispers something at his ear. 
what does he whisper exactly? And he, was, he asked like four details of the screenplay. I said, okay, I'm going to do it. That's it. <laughs> it was that's funny. And then we finished the lunch and I have that page with all his notes, with all his notes and with some grease stains as well from, from the lunch we had. It was great. It was great. I mean, Max von Sydow was great. It was, uh, I mean, he, he went there for a week. And something really nice happened to me when uh, Juan Carlos is a very bright director and he was already there with his first movie. And he decided that, uh, okay, from the moment on that I start to direct, Andres, who is the co-writer of the movie, because at that time, I, I'm not the screenwriter, we, we were both the screenwriters, but we were writing. I mean, it was really, we, 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 we sat down together for one and a half year writing every day, that thing. And he said, uh, once he started to direct, he said, okay, now I'm the director and Andres is going to become the writer for the time being. So he asked me to come to Tenerife once Max Foncido uh, arrived there for uh, rewriting, for do some rewrites uh, while they were um, rehearsing some of the, of the scenes. And he remembered that um, the monologue he says in the movie was something that we wrote quite uh, at the end of the process. It was something that I remember that uh, Fernando Bobaira, the, the head producer of Sohecine, asked us to write. He said, we need a monologue where this character explains why he does what he does. And at the time, because we were already in pre-production, it, it, was, it, 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 and it, it was me who was writing. I had to write that. So um, one of the pieces that uh, Max von Sydow had to rehearse was that monologue. And I remember when he started to say the words, and I, and I started to hear the words I had written in Max von Sydow's mouth, and I had like goosebumps, and I'm saying, you are extremely lucky, Andres, because the first thing you write professionally, you have these monsters when actors say them. It's, it was something, I, I, I'm telling you that, and I still have goosebumps. One of the most beautiful experiences in, in this entertainment. Uh, it, was, it was really, really special, really special. It was something amazing. I, when I went to the, to the States, I mean, the, 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 the thing I really, uh, taught, they, they taught me a lot of things. But one of the things is that you are there to make the actors do what they do. This is your, 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 your work. They, they are the ones who are going to, to provide the emotions. They're the ones who are to provide the laughter, everything, you know. You have to give them the words or you have to direct them for them uh, to, to, to do that. And David was with Max von Sydow. It was great. Was he always going to be speaking English in the screenplay, in the movie? It was always to be English. And was, we, we had a moment when he said to us, what kind of English do you want me to speak with a Swedish accent, with a French accent? And he started to do all the accents you could, uh, he knew, and there were many. And at this end, we decided to do a neutral English because they all, when he did French, it, 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 it sounded like the Inspector Clouseau from the Pink Panther. And when he did all this, it was very weird to everything. But at the end, we said, your neutral uh, English, it was. But it was always to be going to be English, yes. I have to know where the scene of the bug came from. Who, whose idea was that? Okay, the, the, the idea with the bug, uh, it, it was uh, Juan Carlos' idea. Uh, he said, uh, when we started to this, uh, when we when we, we decided that these people uh, play games, uh, and, and, and in a moment we say, okay, uh, we have these people who have a lot of luck, who decide they have their lucky, who can steal luck from others, so they are going to play games. And then Enrique, our producer, says, okay, they have to play games, but they cannot play normal games. I don't, I don't have an interest, or we don't have an interest to see them playing roulette or poker or whatever, or the Euro Million. No, they wanted to play weird games. So we, we went for the weird things. 
And one day I remember Juan Carlos said to me, you know what? Mm, I see something like then in the in 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 darkness, all these characters in darkness, and a thing flying on on them over them that has light. And I said, okay, let's play this game. And I said, hey, you know what? Let's put uh, I don't say how you say melasa, um, this kind of uh, molas in their heads. So the, <laughs> this ancient ghost. So this is something that is very Juan Carlos, which is the, the image, that strong images. He has the, I mean, that incredible talent to, to generate all the time. And my idea was that <laughs> put molasses in, in, in these people's heads because the, 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 this insect likes it. It's very, it's very funny because I see the, I see the movie and that game and the game, uh, the game which wasn't a game first, uh, the game of the, which is one of the great scenes of Intacto, the one they run in the, in the, in the forest. Uh, blindfolded running in the forest, which is, I mean, he, he shot it wonderfully. Um, these are very Juan Carlos. They're very visual. They're very playful. And the game, which very much like me, is the one with their, where the, the second game, where they hug these people who have, don't have no luck at all and they have to steal as little luck as they are and they play and they play dice afterwards and no one has understood ever that what the game was about. Which is very much like me. I don't make, make myself very clear. Did you ever see? Isn't there a uh, a prodigy video where they're? Yeah, they exactly. Copy it. There's some. I mean, we have many many homages <laughs> for intact. <laughs> a lot, a lot of. Them. And I, I remember that's it. that's the the, the the way we are because uh, I remember when I saw prodigies. They uh, said, "Joe, it's great." I mean, they have taken our game uh, that you shot wonderfully and then make that a, a, a beautiful video. Uh, um, a video for their song. Why don't you call them and say, why do you uh, please invite us to one of your concerts in London? Because I don't know, you have even just plagiarized our our movie. At least give us something. And Juan Carlos doesn't have that sense of humor. And I said, nah, don't worry. It's not how much. What does Intacto do for you and for your career after it comes out? It was funny. Uh, for me, at the beginning, I mean, it, it made a lot of for, for Juan Carlos and for Leonardo Baraglia, but uh, in the Goya nomination, but uh, the screenplay wasn't nominated. So for me, it, was, it wasn't as big. But for me, the problem was that at that time, I didn't want to be a screenwriter. I, I was doing a little bit of everything, and I, I never took a course on screenwriting, or, or maybe one. I, I, I never wanted to write. And it's fine because I, at the end, I've, I've developed a, a career writing. Uh, when you don't want to do something, then God says, okay, here, do it twice. It, it gave me some relevance. I, it gave me some business. I did. I, I wrote like very quickly three or four uh, screenplays. I, went, I became head of development for Soke Cine for a time. It was a, it was a career path I didn't, want to, I, I didn't want to do with 30 years. That was there, 30-something years. I wanted to write. I wanted to be in the creative side, not, not in the production side. And it, it put me in the in the market for for a long time. And but I, I'm a kind of a person that I, I, I don't have a tendency to. I don't sell myself very well. But I'm shy in that way. And so I decided to to be to to let my career move along as the as, as it will. Juan Carlos decided to to work with with other screenwriters. And very good for him because I mean he's, he's he's kind of he's that kind of director he's the kind of director more in the in in, in your style in the American style of directors that they they tend to to uh, to read other people's material and to be the director of uh, for writers who already have screenplays 
So uh, he, he went away. He was taken first by the British and then <laughs> by you. I think they're now uh, shooting <laughs> TV. Uh, and uh, I, I went there for, for, for many years. I was writing and then I had a, a small problem, a small big problem with my wife. Uh, she, she, she became quite ill for, for a couple of years. So I started, stopped. And then um, in 2010, I, I came across some, some new friends the younger generation and we had a beautiful idea for a movie which is still on development and hopefully it will come out because it's one of the highest the best highest movie ideas ever i'm going to tell you more but it's a great idea and from there on i started to to write again i started to write television a little bit uh, and now i'm writing television and suddenly a very good friend of mine uh, another producer from soccer cine Almost 20 years afterwards, he said, you know, I have this novel, uh, it's, a, it's a thriller that uh, happens in the Canary Islands, where I'm from, we would like to adapt it, and I said, I, 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 I'll do it, sure, and I love the, 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 the novel, so I started to do that, and for the first time in my life, I, I had the chance to adapt a novel, to write a screenplay without a director or a co-writer. So something happened to me that I had to direct the movie while I was writing. I started to say, okay, this is going to be Shona. And when I finished the, 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 the screenplay, I gave it to them. and said, you want to direct it? They said, yes, I want to direct it. And so I just finished my first movie, which is going to premiere the 1st of September. <laughs> Already, yeah, many years afterwards. So at the end, I wanted to direct, and it took me some time, but I've, I've done my first movie. Yeah, I think over here they're calling it The Mist and the Maiden. Yes, that's it. And we had a big, uh, because it's the name of the, the novel, it's the, the title of the novel, but the novel hasn't been translated to English. Uh, when I asked him how, because Maiden and the Mist, we wanted to, to, to I wanted to, to translate it, and he said, no, because it's because of the Schubert uh, sextet or quartet, which is Mist and, Mist and the Death, or I don't know how you and therefore it's called, as you said. You've directed before. You've done uh, uh, some short short films. Mm -hmm. How is it uh, directing your first feature? Oh, hard, <laughs> hard. It's hard. And at the same time, it was. It, it's been. Um, it, it's a feature that's um, industry feature for Spain. It's doing with Antena 3, which is one of the big, two big uh, television companies who puts money in there. So it's a bigger than average uh, movie for the Spanish industry. So it had a lot of. Uh, it was tough. But it was a, I, what, what I say is um, it, it's funny. Uh, it, it's not it's not easy to, uh, to do the transition from writing to screenplay uh, to to directing. Sorry, the, the transition to writing to screenplay uh, to directing. And you remember the, the King Gutierrez, what is the, the main character of my movie? He said, uh, "I see that. I see that you writers suffer a lot when you direct because when while you, while you write." Everything is free. Your imagination, in your imagination, everything is possible. And once you put a camera, it's what, what, what you have. And everything is more constricted and everything is shot and stays there forever as you shoot it. You cannot imagine it in, in a thousand ways. So it, therefore, it was tough. But at the same time, it was, uh, I had a hard time, but at the same time, uh, something there, I don't know, after many years of writing and seeing movies and speaking with a lot of directors, something was happening because when I, when I finished shooting, I started to edit and to, to do all the post-production, I started to see a lot of the things I had done in directing that I, didn't, I wasn't conscious, but they, they, they were there. And there were things in the movie that I'm very, very happy with them. 
And at the same time, one of the big lessons I have learned is that I have a great admiration for the directing uh, work, uh, for directors. It's a very tough job. It's a tough, tough, tough job. Actually, when I, have, I have a lot of friends who are directors and say, you know what, my admiration. <laughs> now, I, I, I used to say directors are a really stupid bunch because they only, the, only, the only thing they do is take a great screenplay and make a poo-poo with it, make a shitty movie with it. No, now I know how hard it is. <laughs> now I hard it. No, I cannot say that. Anton. And something really funny happens when you, you, you direct your first movie. I... I, how you say when you I, I do the, I did the locations uh, like a screenplay like like a screenwriter not as a director I said you, I I locate uh, I did the locations because the where where the places where the movie was happening not the places where I could shoot the movie that was written and that gave you gave us some some tense moments but it came across quite well I'm happy I'm happy are you excited to do it again Yeah sure now that I know yes. I, I I love to do it. I have an idea, which is a beautiful idea. There was something is based on a in a real crime in Spain in the eighties. And I'm trying. Please, please, let God let me direct that because that that's a great, great, great idea. Explain Spain, the transition of Spain from dictatorship to democracy, with a thriller written without speaking about politics. It explains Spain how it was and how we are better than anything, and it can be a very universal thing. It's just really, really, really great idea. It's a great real crime. What is the the state of the Spanish film industry these days? These days is kind of we're living a very, very, a very convulsed times because our law just changed for these years and is the worst law to make movies in Spain ever, ever. I mean, we're 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 speaking that there is, a, there is an industry of a film industry in Spain. Small one with some good results. We're talking about 100, 120 movies, and we, we are in the process. If this law doesn't change, of becoming a 20 years, uh, 20 movies a year industry. Wow, it's, it's like that. We are, we are real, really the. It's our apocalypse now from <laughs> this apocalypse of the Spanish industry. We are really, really. I mean, they changed the law. Now they give you points for some. You have to have a television, but. Uh, it's hard to, to explain, uh, but we are living very, very bad times. Very, very bad times. I have to say that because we, everyone is uh, very scared. For screenplay, money of development has been cut completely. So now uh, we have to, to write specs. No, no, more, no, no one has them the, the money to hire screenwriters to do development. Imagine uh, you come from an industry that believes in development. <laughs> <laughs> before anything else and now in Spain that's impossible and from there on everything only if you have a big only if you have a big trajectory as a production company if you have a big television budget and you have a, a recent history of success of going both in in box office and in film festivals you're being, you have the, the muscle to, to make movies now. And we are talking seven production companies and three televisions. Wow, that's like that. Like that. Yeah. When I was in Barcelona just a few years ago, going to one of the malls there, it was almost exclusively American films that were dubbed into Spanish. Yeah, yes. And it's something that uh, well, we, I, I remember when I, I went to the university in 1982. 
I don't know if you were born already. <laughs> well, <laughs> but many years ago. And we were saying that. I mean, it's one of the terrible byproducts of the Spanish dictatorship, of Franco's 40 years of dictatorship. He said, Spaniards are not going to be contaminated, polluted by the English language. So we're going to tap everything. So he gave to, to the American, English, French, German industry the Spanish, which is our is our strength. We have our our language, and if 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 you, if you have to to exhibit in English and I have to exhibit in Spanish, the people who want to see movies in Spanish have to go to see my movie, not your movie. So he gave that, and after forty years of dubbing movies. All the the Spanish public hasn't uh, doesn't have the um, has been trained to 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 hear every everything in Spanish, which is very funny because if you go and you see Tom Cruise or whoever I mean you like, and you hear him in Spanish, you say I don't know this guy has been paid millions and millions of dollars for this movie, and I'm hearing a guy who's been paid thousands of dollars his voice. But at the same time, you can compete, and Americans are extremely happy because in Spain we can fight with Spanish uh, in their own terms with Spanish, and for for, for them it's great. And it's something that you cannot do anything about. And I think it's fair. And at the same time, something happens in Spain that doesn't happen in America. Uh, in Spain, uh, the big uh, majors have all the change. They, they have all the the value chain of of, of of film. They have distribution companies, they have exhibition uh, cinemas, they have everything. So you can, how you compete is very hard. Not that I'm complaining. You said that The Mist and the Maiden opens uh, September 1st. Is that, yes. uh, is that wide distribution? Is it going out to festivals first or what's the story? We went. We went to a festival to Malaga. The Spanish. Uh, in, uh, it was the Spanish film festival, but now it's a in Spanish uh, film festival. We went okay. The movie wasn't finished completely. We had things to do, but it went. It, it, for me, it was a very good experience because I had the chance afterward to do some small changes, not not very big, but some, and to polish a little bit my music and so on. And I'm happy of going there. And then we start the first of the September. We start the distribution thing. Afterwards, I don't know. They're selling them. It's a it's a very Spanish movie. It's a, it's a movie that takes place in the Canary Islands in La Gomera. It's a beautiful island. It's a very dramatic uh, place, and it's a very um, it's it's, uh, it's a thriller. It's a quiet thriller. It's a thriller of characters and so on. I'm happy. So, but I'm, we're opening in Spain. It's a very, it's a very quiet movie. It's a, it's a hard. I'll, I'll tell you what. It's a hard movie to watch for for non-Spanish speakers because they talk a lot. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a movie very much in the Agatha Christie uh, tradition. People who talk. And what I like a lot about it, I mean, there's something I can tell you. What, what I really like a lot, I when the all the research for for the movie with the actors, we went to the. Uh, uh, here in Spain, you know, we have a Guardia Civil, which is a military police that they, makes duty in with people. Something that only only exists in in Spain, and they're incredible guys, and they're really really good policemen. And we went to 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 meet. We went to to yes to meet with the with the guys who take care of uh, assassinations. Yes. Who, who, the, who, the, the, the ones who investigate uh, murders in Spain. And they were completely normal people. 
you go there and they're completely normal and the investigations are completely normal. It's, it's, it's really, and that's what's really wonderful about them. And you say, no, they are not uh, gods or they're not really bright people. They're really bright people. No, sorry, they're really, really bright. They're really couple, talented, beyond belief, but they're really normal. And you say, they're people like me. And that, they, that, that gave me a very comfy feeling, a really great feeling of saying, wow, we are in great hands. These people are really good. And therefore, the people in the movie are very normal. <laughs> My actors they say, okay, great. I don't have to, to be very angry or to have a backstory full of pain and regret to be a good cop. We're back and we are talking about Intacto. Now I'm curious, have either of you guys ever seen the video from The Prodigy, which is a, it's odd that they did this. It's a remix. They had a video for Voodoo People and then they did a remix of Voodoo People and then did a video for that. And that is basically a remake of the forest scene with a little bit of the highway scene from Intacto. But there's no kind of mentions of Intacto whatsoever. But it's just this weird, like, five-minute version of Intacto with the guys from The Prodigy in it. No, I haven't seen that particular Prodigy video, though... I will say the forest running scene, there are parts of that that actually reminded me of another music video, which would be uh, for Spark, the song Spark by Tori Amos. Because there's a great shot of her running blindfolded with her hands tied behind in a forest. But um, I think that came out actually before Intacto. I listen to Barry Manilow, Mike, so I, I haven't seen that Prodigy. <laughs> <laughs> so you have seen him perform Coco Cabana, right? <laughs> oh, more more times than I could count. Oh, beautiful. <laughs> That's all that matters. At the end of the day, you are the winner. You are the lucky one. I'm pretty sure if they were, if Barry Manilow were accompanying a, a, a blindfolded run through the forest, the people running would be begging to hit a tree. I know. I love Barry Manilow. I'm kidding. I feel terrible for that. Sorry, Barry. Jamie, when we were talking about this originally, you brought up a really good uh, comparison movie, which was Peter Weir's Fearless, which I had not seen because basically because of uh, Rosie Perez. Um, really have a hard time with her voice, with her screen presence. And I finally made it through fearless yesterday uh for the first time and man there were some times where it's just like just her voice is so grating i mean it's like i would rather listen to fran drescher recite shakespeare than rosie perez recite anything it just drives me up a tree but i was really glad to see young jeff bridges and young not playing a uh, southern stereotype type role jeff bridges so it seems like that ripd character he plays just keeps coming back and again and again and i guess rooster cogburn and uh helen high water he just seems to be playing that character these days but in this one it is young spry jeff bridges he's kind of become a caricature of himself you're absolutely right he has some kind of breathing difficulty lately and it sounds like a silly critique but it sounds like he's like he has a real problem breathing in the past few movies, and it, it becomes kind of an annoying character affect uh, as a result. 
but uh, Fearless uh, is one of my favorite movies. It's definitely one of my favorite Peter Weir movies, and it, centrally b- because of Jeff Bridges. I think it's one of his great performances. I, after he did that movie, I think he took a lot of time off because the, the film took a lot out of him. Uh, but I had never, and with in terms of Rosie Perez, it's interesting how she was nominated for an Oscar for that. And Jeff, Jeff Bridges was not. And that's just, uh, Bridges is just a towering performance. And I have some behind the scenes dirt on that movie too. Cause we spoke to, um, someone that was one of the essential crew members of that movie. And, uh, he was just telling me what a nightmare Rosie Perez was, uh, <laughs> during that shoot to, to kind of get along with. I think it's an incredible movie, but I had never really considered it a movie about luck. I thought it worked on various levels, including a spiritual level. I'm not a spiritual person, but I I mean, I can, in terms of believing God or anything, but I I can see a spiritual quality to that movie. It's also about, you know, pressing your luck in a way and how you can live life to your fullest without being suicidal. <laughs> I mean, it, it goes about it in a very, a very interesting way, but, but you're, you're right. It is a movie that, that deals with, with luck. I mean, he's another plane crash survivor. And throughout the course of the movie, he's, he's, he keeps testing his luck because he feels in, in, invincible in a way. But at the same time, he's, it's almost like that feeling of invincibility is another stage of grief. And he has to suffer through another traumatic event to really come back to life. Uh, it's, it's, I think it's an extraordinary movie. Yeah, this whole idea of him feeling like a ghost. That's the one moment with Rosa Perez, probably because she's silent in this scene, that I really enjoy is when they're looking at the baby. She's lost her, her uh, child in the crash. And she is someplace and uh, there's a child there and she's going up and smelling the child and being next right next to the child and everything. And nobody seems to notice that she's doing that, you know, like what would normally be really super creepy behavior. But she's doing that and really kind of connecting. And, you know, again, no one is noticing. So it is almost like proving his uh, assertion that they're ghosts. But, yeah, there's. I'm amazed at some of the performances in that movie and just to see the caliber of actors, the, both the people who we knew were somebody at the time, you know, like Totoro, of course, Isabella Rossellini, but then to see like young Benicio del Toro in a fantastic role. I mean, of course he had already done, you know, the James Bond film and a few other films, but uh, he really, this was one of those things where I was just like, wow, this, this guy is going to be something someday and uh his oh my god when that when they're haggling about the lawsuit tom hulse is amazing in this movie as well as one of the slimiest lawyers ever but when del toro is arguing over the phone and talks about how you know another person got two million dollars for a dead baby i was like oh shit that is one of the most heart-wrenching just in the wrong way scenes and Perez's face after that I was really she carried it in that scene as well so as long as she's not speaking I guess I'm okay (laughs) yeah and when you're talking about movies about luck especially something like fearless I mean other things other things pop up too like or like fate like 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 faith so it is an interesting topic to explore 
But Fearless is one of my favorite movies. The one that I was actually thinking of when you brought up the topic of luck was uh, Match Point, uh, Woody Allen's film, because luck, luck plays a big part in that. I mean, Woody Allen's entire philosophy is, you know, we're just kind of blowing in the wind. You know, to bring it back to faith, he's very clear. There is no God. Everything's the luck of the draw. Uh, and and when he uses that concept to, to build a kind of murder thriller like Match Point, uh, you know, whether the killer gets away or not is is just a com- complete result of of whether he's lucky or not. Another movie, another star studded film, though, I have to say of, of a much different cut of actors that deals a lot with luck. And I have to say that, I mean, there's there's a lot of intacto in Wayne Kramer's The Cooler from 2003, and I don't think it's any small coincidence that The Cooler was also a Lionsgate picture. You talked about how they were talking about remaking Intacto, and it feels like kind of a, as they would say in today's market, a soft reboot of (laughs) Intacto by moving it to the United States, moving it to a casino over here, and kind of making it you know, speak a little bit to uh, Scorsese's casino insofar as there is this older casino, the Shangri-La, where uh, people uh, still go for the old Vegas experience. There are these young guys, one of them, Ron Livingston, uh, coming in and saying, listen, you need to change your wallpaper, put on this music, you know, do all of these things that is going to make the Shangri-La exactly like every other Steve Wynn owned property on the strip and Alec Baldwin is the old school owner runner of the casino Shelley Kaplow is his name and so we've got that story which is kind of a eh, I can't say a typical story but a very very American type story and then injected into that you have this other story of William H. Macy as Bernie, uh, what's his name? Bernie Lutz. So very close to lose. And he is their cooler. So he's the guy when their uh, players are getting too hot, they're getting too lucky. He will come and uh, again, through touch, he steals their luck. He is a walking jinx, basically. And, And unfortunately, unlike Frederico, he does not get luck in return. It's not like this thing where he is sapping their strength and he's not rogue. He doesn't then gain their powers, their abilities, their knowledge, any of that kind of stuff. He just saps their luck. They lose. And that's it. They, you know, cash out and go home. Or if they have any money left, they'll be lucky after he's done with them. And then we have a a love story that plays into that. So it's, it's, uh, it's an interesting take on this, but it's much more, Americanized, I would have to say, and it's much more, we learn the rules of the game very well. I will say, though, that I like this movie and that it is one that I've actually gone back to a couple times and watched because it's a really nice love story. Maria Bello is fantastic in this. Her relationship with William H. Macy is really compelling. I just enjoy this movie a lot and i like the the play of these two stories and the way that they intersect the way that shelly interacts with bernie there's so many nice moments to this film and again we're talking about really high caliber actors especially with our three main leads and then even down to some of the smaller parts i mean for god's sakes paul servino plays a small role in this film it's like 
wow, the Ellen Green is, uh, you know, in this movie. MC Ganey is there for five seconds. You know, it's just like everybody is somebody in this movie. Well, and the Servino character is is particularly affecting because the the whole theme of the old Vegas kind of dying out and becoming more and more irrelevant. That's that character to a T. <laughs> That's the whole character. Being replaced by Joey Fatone as Johnny Capella. I mean, even just their names are like Buddy Stafford being replaced by Johnny Capella. And uh, Fatone is just so schmaltzy and just that new breed of entertainer. And yeah, their the old Vegas, to your point, is dying out. And Ron Livingston as Larry Sokolov is doing everything in his power to make sure that that happens uh and just all those little needling jabs that it gives to Al- the alec baldwin character of like you know listen to this you know there's there's subliminal messages in this mu- music to uh tell everybody to lose yeah and and william h basie playing what he plays so well which is just a miserable sad sack of a human being <laughs> I mean, it's, kind, it's kind of a perfect uh perfect ro- role for him and i think i mean our coolers are are they real? Are, are they real things? I mean, is it a real thing? I, I don't think they made up the cool the notion of the cooler at a casino just for this movie. I think it's actually something that that they put stock into previously in 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 Vegas. Or do you think it was invented for this movie? Looking at TripAdvisor, <laughs> there is a question: Do coolers really exist in Vegas? And uh, yeah, um, I, I think that it's. There's a notion of it, but I don't know if they actually have real people. I think really what they do is they bring in uh, new people to maybe disrupt the game, but not necessarily, you know, they don't say this person is unlucky and they're going to throw them off by having a jinx in the mix. I thought it could be another career for me. Thanks for blowing that dream, Mike. Thanks. I'm sorry. Yeah, and a lot of times, too, the whole switching of dealers, the we have to take a break and count the chips or switch out to a different shoe or any of these kind of things. We have a new boss on any of that stuff. Those are usually meant to disrupt the game and hopefully break people of a streak if they have it. And then of course, you know, they're always, there's that eye in the sky. That's always looking for card counters and any sort of deviation from normal play. So that's going to get busted pretty quickly as well. I remember when both fearless and the cooler came out and I honestly, Jamie, you make me actually kind of want to see Fearless now because I avoided it. Um, I don't have a huge hate on for Rosie Perez, but yeah, you know. (laughs) That trailer was not very appealing. I remember from I was uh, working at the movie theater when it came out and I was just like, wow, this looks (laughs) awful. If you watch that movie in the theater, which I did when it first came out with the big sound and the big screen, the plane crashed amazing. Uh, the way Peter Weir depicts the plane crash in, in these kind of flashes that you watch it for Jeff Bridges uh, and you watch it for Peter Weir and the cinematography. But I was really taken by the fact that when he, when he was on the spiral on the plane and death was imminent, how this complete calm overtook him and he started making eye contact with people on the plane saying, it's going to be okay. It's going to be okay. Uh, like something took over that, uh, <clears throat> that can't really be explained. Uh, I just thought psychologically it was just a completely intriguing 
movie, as well as a very emotional experience. I mean, it's one of the it's one of the great kind of cathartic endings, as well when he when he suffers another traumatic experience and he begins to laugh and and and, and scream out, "I'm alive! I'm alive!" And then the movie just ends, and it's like a gut punch. I just I do adore that movie, and I, I have not seen it in years, so just talking about it again. Uh, makes me want to check it out again tonight, good tonight. Well, you definitely have me very curious, especially because I do think Peter Weir's a really interesting director. Um, and, you know, that's that's a thing. It's it's a hard lesson to learn because there's so many, there's plenty of films I love that if I had to just try and introduce somebody by showing them the, only the trailer, you know, you know, there's a lot of films that get, that don't really get like promoted like they should, like Intacto. Going back to uh, discussions of luck and, moreover, Russian roulette, two movies, which it's tough to say two movies because they're basically the same movie, but just done twice. It's this kind of it's it's always an interesting phenomenon when you have a director who redirects a movie they've already done. It's kind of like going back and looking at the two funny games from Henneke. And in this case, it's 13 and 13 Samadhi, I guess is how you say it, both done by the same filmmaker, and to see how he approached the same material from one time to another time was really very interesting. And I have to say, I think a lot of these movies, now, there's a bleakness that comes in the original, which was a a French language film, black and white you know, looking at this film now, it's like, you know, thinking of the underclass and our main character is very much a member of the underclass and the way that he gets introduced to this uh, world of gambling, which is pretty much everybody who is a, uh, let's say, the player, because there are two classes when it comes to this game that they're going to play in this movie. There's the players themselves and then there's the gamblers and all of the players are at the end of their rope. And even though our main character has taken the spot of another person, that person ends up dying in both versions of this. And uh, our main character comes in and takes over that role. And uh, he is not in necessarily as dire straits as some of these other characters are, but he really kind of is, you know, he's, he's in a very rough spot and then we have the other class, which is the gamblers, who are throwing around all this money and just betting on this underclass, who are there to do one of the sickest but most engaging games. I was saying the other night that I feel wrong for liking 13 as much as I do, but God, do I yeah, love it. Yeah, it says a lot about you. It's just so fascinating to watch. And... um I have to say, I like the remake a little bit better than I do the original, I guess because you get a lot more of the characters you're watching. Again, talk about high-caliber acting. The remake of 13 is one of those movies, again, where everybody is somebody, and you're seeing, I think this is, if not the last performance by Ben Gazzara, one of the last, because he is not looking too good in this movie, but so great to see him. Everybody, like I said, you, you got Mickey Rourke, Ray Winstone, Jason Statham, uh, uh, 50 Cent. There's just everybody down the line. And then Michael Shannon in one of what could be one of the most thankless roles ever as the guy who kind of runs. Very the- much. He's very strange in the movie because 
his performance consists of him screaming out the exact same phrase five or six times in the movie. <laughs> like, how many times am I going to have to repeat these instructions before, you know, obviously they get it by now. I've already repeated it like three or four times. Uh, it, it does have a very interesting cast. The problem with that is in a movie about a death game where one person gets knocked off after another, you can pretty much tell the progression of who will get knocked off last by, you know, how big their name is above the title. Uh, but I mean, when you have Ray Winstow to uh, Jason Statham and Mickey Rourke, uh, Ben Gazzara, I mean, that's a pretty, but uh, that's a movie pretty filled with testosterone right there. I never saw the original, but I did watch the the remake today. And uh, I mean, I can, I'm glad to hear you say that you enjoyed the remake a little bit better because usually it's, it's the opposite. Usually the the film purists say, no, the, the original was the, the pure, uncompromised version. And uh, usually that's true. I mean, if you look at something like The Vanishing, which is another instance of a director who re-Americanized his own remake, you know, it's diminishing returns. I, I, thought it, I thought it was fine. Like I said before, unlike something like Intacto, it's, it is nihilistic. Let me just put this out there. I think that the director is a big fan of Quentin Tarantino because it feels to me almost like we're going to take that Mexican standoff at the end of Reservoir Dogs and we're just going to have, and this is what the game is in the movie, so we're going to have Nice Guy Eddie put his gun against the head of, of Joe Cabot's head. We're going to have Joe Cabot put his gun against the uh, Mr. White's head. And we're going to have Mr. White put his gun against uh, Nice Guy Eddie's head. And then at the count of three or when the light goes off, pull your trigger and we'll see who's going to survive this game. You know, is do you have a bullet in the chamber or not? So it's this Russian roulette game being played in here. And then there, that's very much, you know, at the core, that's the original. And then the remake he kind of does, again, more of a Reservoir Dogs because then we get the backstories of these characters and we get these flashbacks of, you know, uh, the Jason Statham character and the Mickey Rourke character. And we kind of get, we don't get the title cards. It doesn't come up when Mickey Rourke has his thing and say Jefferson, you know, but it's very similar insofar as the way that we get these little vignettes and kind of go back into the past. And I will say that if this is a Tarantino-esque movie, this is one of my better-liked Tarantino-esque movies. This is not Truth or Consequences, New Mexico. This is not Things to Do in Denver When You're Dead. This is something that really takes, to me, some very simple ideas and plays them out in a very nice way. And some of those flashbacks, I know a lot of critics said that those, those were just padding. But again, if you have Mickey Rourke, like you said, you have Mickey Rourke in your film, and this is prime Mickey Rourke. Well, not, you know... 1980s Mickey work, but this is Mickey work when he knows what the fuck is going on. Does a great job in this. His little story with 50 Cent is done very, very well. And so, yeah, it's great. I'm fine having a flashback to his stuff. I'm fine knowing more about the Ray Winstone character. Again, really very compelling. And that you don't get any sort of backstory to the Ray Winstone character or the Jason Statham character in the original. It's just like, Okay, it feels much more random. Like when when the Jason Statham character comes up to our main character at the end and shoots him in the original, it's just like, oh yeah, I guess I kind of recognize him from the game, but I didn't 
have that stake. You know, it wasn't somebody where I was just like, oh yeah, I know this guy and I know why he's pissed right. off. Right. I thought it was a decent movie. And when I say it's nihilistic, I don't mean that as, uh, I'm not damning the movie for being nihilistic because that's what it has going for it. Uh, that's what gives the movie its kick. And there, there are some movies like that. But what is effective about the movie is, you know, they play this this game of Russian roulette with 13 players in a circle. Uh, and they each round, they put in another bullet in the chamber and and point the gun to their the player in front of them and pull the trigger. So they do that like maybe three or four times in the movie. The stakes couldn't be higher during those sequences. So it is a great dramatic device to, that that really makes the audience kind of step up and it, it builds suspense. Uh, and it, it's the suspense is not limited to you know the the climax of the movie. And in a certain way, there uh, there there are three or four climaxes in the movie during those games. And and then after those games conclude, you still have another what tw- 20, 25 minutes left of the movie. <laughs> and you're like, there's more after after this. I thought, you know, I think I've had enough of this. Yeah, it's that moment in Hostel after he escapes from the torture chamber, and you're just like, well, what are they going to do for the rest of the movie? And you know what? With Hostel, I don't give a shit. I'm I was done with the movie as soon as it started, so I'm just like, uh, whatever. But with this one, I actually want to see what happens to the Sam Riley character. And Sam Riley, I really haven't seen him in a whole lot. I mostly know him from, of all things, Maleficent. But I really liked him in Thirteen, and uh, I, I'm curious to see a little bit more of what he's done. Actually, I take that back because I did see uh, Control, and he was fucking awesome as Ian Curtis in Control, which I thought was going to be a piece of shit biopic, and I was surprised at how much I liked that movie. All right, let's go ahead and take another break and play a preview for next week's show. A man suddenly plunged off a deep end of life. The Swimmer. A story that will be talked about. When you talk about The Swimmer, will you talk about yourself? The Swimmer, in Technicolor. That's right, we'll be back next week with a discussion of Frank Perry's The Swimmer. Until then, I want to thank this week's co-hosts, Heather and Jamie. Heather, what is the heps with you, ma'am? Along with Diabolique editor-in-chief and overall badass Kat Ellinger, uh, me and her, we're going to be recording our very first episode later this month of Hell's Bells, which is our, yes, it's very exciting. It's our new podcast where we're going to be examining um, like the more musical element in film. Like our first episode, we're going to be uh, delving into the music used in a number of Radley Metzger's films. We're huge Radley Metzger fans. And in fact, actually my first episode of Projection Booth with you, Mike, was on opening a Misty Beethoven. So there's some kind of cool LaRonde there. We'll also be going into neglected, uh, critically neglected uh, musical genres like heavy metal to strange jazz and everything in between. Um, and I'm also putting the finishing uh, touches along with my writing partner, John Skip, on the Bizarro Film Encyclopedia Volume 1. We've got the main book done. We're just putting some frosting on the cake. And for more information, you can find me on Twitter, Facebook, and my website, mondoheather.com. And Jamie, how are things going at Movie Geeks United? Uh, they're going great. I'm in production on Episode 6 of the Kubrick series, which will be about Full Metal Jacket. Um, and I've, I'm trying, uh, you know, I've got a lot of interviews in the, in the can already for it, but I'm trying to track down more people, including someone that I don't think has ever been interviewed. Uh, but she 
provided one of the most iconic moments of the past 30 years in that movie. The line, you know, Me so horny, you keep lying. Me love you long time. I mean, she's in that movie. I'm talking about Papillon Susu. She's in that movie like a minute. Who doesn't know that line? And she's never been interviewed. So I managed to track her down. So I'm just waiting to hear if she will participate or not. But uh, I'm interested to know when you know, she's not involved in movies. She hasn't really been for 30 years. What's it like to have something so iconic attached to you? To know that you're a part of the film culture uh, and popular culture with your minute of screen time. That would be an interesting story. So anyway, I'm in production on that. The whole series, the Kubrick series, which is part of what we do at Movie Geeks United, uh, it's going to a subscriber platform in September, and you could read more about it at thekubrickseries.com. There's hundreds of hours of material on Stanley Kubrick uh, that we've built at that site. Yeah, if folks haven't listened to that, they definitely need to. It is fantastic and well worth the investment as well as of money as well as time because you guys have done just such a terrific job of thank that. Thank you, man. Thank you, buddy. Well, thank you guys for being on the show. Thanks to everybody for listening. Please head on over to the website projection-boot.com where you can find out more about today's episode. You also find links over to iTunes where you can rate and review the show and to our Patreon where you can make a donation to the show. Donors get early access to every episode as long as I'm not running late. Every donation and every rating we get helps the projection booth take over the world.
dictionary, show the words that I know. Math word is language, and how loquacious I can be when someone might not do it. But she wasn't impressed. No, 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 no. She wasn't impressed at all. this show and want more people to know about it head on over to itunes leave a comment and rate it five stars make sure you like and share us on facebook and don't forget to follow us on twitter just search for christopher media thank you in advance for supporting christopher media by clicking on the paypal button and by clicking through to all the sponsors who support christophermedia.net most importantly we would like to take the time to extend an extra special thanks to you christopher media could not exist without your support thank you for visiting christophermedia.net and thank you for listening Christopher Media, let's make some noise.